0: Welcome, listeners, to episode 25 of the Running Guide podcast, where I aim to provide informative content and interviews with elite athletes and health professionals from around the world. Like in today's episode, where I'm chatting to a highly experienced and reputable exercise physiologist whose vast knowledge and studies of strength and conditioning, injury rehabilitation, biomechanics, postural assessment, hydration, nutrition, rest, and recovery just to name a few made securing this guest on the show a must. My guest worked as a high performance manager at Essendon Football Club for 10 years. GWS Giants for four years, was a sprint and relay coach at the 2000 Sydney Olympics, has worked with the Socceroos and within IPL cricket. My guest is kept busy, among other roles that we'll discuss further, running Quinn Elite Sports Services out of Double Bay, Sydney and South Yarra, Melbourne. Welcome to the Running Guy podcast, John Quinn.
1: Thanks a lot, Aston. I really like the sound of this bloke. I might have to meet him. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> nah, mate. I've uh, yeah, really been looking forward to uh, to speaking to you, just so I feel <laughs> you have... Um, yeah so much wise uh, knowledge to offer to offer the listeners so yeah pretty pretty cool mate before we um, get into it let's how did you first get into um, into the world of exercise physiology and sports science
1: I got into that through coaching and I got into coaching through rugby league when I was a, a young boy in country New South Wales I used to play rugby league and um in fact by the time I was 20 I played rugby league for 14 years and I played representative football for uh, the junior teams in Canberra and uh they needed someone to referee so I got into that and there was a young team that needed a a coach and no one would take them on because they weren't that well behaved and I put my hand up as a probably about a 16 17 year old to coach these uh young 12 year olds and uh there was one boy in there that was particularly fast and I suggested to him that or his father that he should get some um, athletics coaching and his father said, you think he would be good at it? I said, I think he would be very good. And he simply responded, when do you want me to bring him in? Mm-hmm. And at that moment I was born as an, as an athletics coach. I was about 17 years of age and we started uh, an athletics club in the town that I was from, Yass, in uh, New South Wales and uh, that club grew and grew and we had athletes. We were just really having fun and It probably underpins a lot of my philosophy that you have to enjoy, just create something that people can enjoy being a part of. And it's not all just about winning. It's about being involved in something uh, that makes you better for the work that you're putting in. And that's what we tried to create way back in the uh, mid-80s. And uh, from there, I got identified from little athletics and i moved to sydney and became an education development officer for little athletics traveling about 140,000 kilometers a year almost like a evangelist spreading the word of athletics and family fun and fitness and at some point in there i realized i needed to get qualified in in a a formal sense and there was a degree being offered from the university of new south wales in uh, coaching which i was really attracted to but it also had Exercise physiology I'd never know what exercise physiology was but I like the idea of the coaching so into it I went so um, here. I am talking to you uh, You know quite a few years later, and I'm uh, still a coach and I haven't stopped coaching in all those years Um, and uh, I'm an exercise physiologist uh, accredited with uh, our body ESSA and as you said in the intro I uh, Work out of a clinic in Melbourne in South Yarra and one here in Sydney and double Bay
0: Okay, well, um, let's just jump straight to that Um... What, what are you actually doing in those clinics?
1: Well, uh, people can come to me for any number of injuries that they have. It may be that uh, you know they've had a workplace accident, a slip or a fall. They've got a bad back from sitting in a terrible chair. But a lot of them are to do with movement. And with my background in uh, high-performance sport, I bring a different dimension to that, whereas I look at how they move. And I'm not just really interested in the symptoms. Sure, they might have a bad back or they might have a sore knee that's the symptom what's the cause of that and uh so we go almost it's like a bit of an investigation and that's usually i have a look at uh, their posture and uh what's what's their body is it in alignment and so on and uh that's corrected through exercise and uh, strengthening stretching exercises from my perspective and i also will have a look at the move and that could be simple walking uh I can see people walking on the street and basically jumps out that, you know, they've got a bad hip or a bad knee or a bad shoulder, whatever, mm. uh, but it, it helps if they're running and the faster they run, the more I see. So I'll often do a, a movement analysis of them as well and then put that into a report and away we go and bring in the people that uh, are needed in that, whether that be a doctor, a physiotherapist, massage therapist or some other form of allied health.
0: Yeah, okay, okay. So let's talk about, about runners when 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 runners come into you um, with an injury, would would you say I mean this is just a, a number, but would you say ninety percent of those injuries are created by poor biomechanics or sort of irregularities through through muscular strength rather than an overuse thing?
1: Uh, a lot of uh, athletes come in and they uh, I think they get they overload the same thing too often. so yep. that can quite often be that, but it's exacerbated by the fact that they're uh their posture their mechanics and even their strength yeah uh, isn't isn't at its optimum so they sort of go uh hand in hand and yeah. you know i think you've, you've got to address it uh, a multifactorial thing which in a clinic setting isn't always that easy because it, it, you then also have to have buy-in not only from that athlete but also the athlete's coach and yeah. uh, so long as they're they're prepared to buy in uh then it's going to work and i'll say to the patients I have, in fact, the, the people that run the clinic say I'm mad doing this, but I say it pretty much to every patient I have come in, that they're not going to get any result in less than six weeks. Yep. And what they need to do is do the program that I've set up for them, whether that be a strengthening, mobility, stability or a movement program. They need to do that consistently over six weeks. If they can do that over six weeks and they do not get a result, they don't get a positive change, I will refund every dollar that they've invested in coming to see me. Mm. And fortunately, whether people are just shy or not, but I haven't had to refund a dollar just yet. Mm. So that's that's what I I I think that you shouldn't have to pay for something you don't get the result. But at the same time, people have to do what you tell them to do. And if they just... Continue doing the same old thing. I mean, that's a definition of stupidity. Doing the same thing over and over and thinking you're going to get a a different result. And if the same thing over and over is leading you to get, you know, shin splints, stress fractures, um, back soreness, whatever it might be, and you just keep doing the same thing over and over and over. Well, sorry, you fall in the category of stupid.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so you're not necessarily referring someone over to a physiotherapist. You can actually write them a program once they leave the clinic to, to what they actually need to go to do to strengthen and, and condition that
1: oh yes. yep. yeah yeah well, i think it's, it's becoming a very uh a separate area in yep. uh, australian allied health yep. where you know physios have got a vital role obviously in the uh in the whole rehabilitation process but an exercise physiologist of expertise is actually in the prescription of exercise which mm. is beyond that of what you would find from your physiotherapist Mm. I think they should work together but initial stages of rehab sure the physiotherapist would uh, uh, devise that that program but then the rehab is handed over to someone that's uh, more proficient in that return to full function and that's the role of an exercise physiologist yeah and I've probably been really driven by that vision if you like uh, having worked in AFL so I worked 10 years in Melbourne with Essendon Football Club and we had one of the best uh, medical teams there with doctors and physios that I've, I've been fortunate enough to work with and then subsequent to that traveling with teams but then coming to Sydney and part of my role of coming to Sydney was actually to establish the team which was uh, in terms of the medical team and sports science team to put um, the doctors and physios in place and communication vital there and everybody knows their role and it's so important when you're talking about rehab and return to play that it's a a patient or an athlete-centred program, not an ego-centred one where I'm the one that got them back. That's irrelevant. It's the fact that we've got them back uh, in less time than what we really thought would be, but being realistic in terms of uh, the objectives and the goals that you're putting in front of that individual to get them back.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, as you you be aware, us us runners um, are pretty bad at at doing our our strength and conditioning, which I'll touch on again later. Um, And generally physiotherapists will probably never go broke because generally we go in there, you know, we want to get fixed so we can get running the next day and they'll hand us a little program to go and do and generally most runners don't do it. They'll do it for two or three days and they get back into the same old routine, the old bad habits and um and the injury may not go away it's probably just settled down and then um because they don't do that strength and conditioning work sooner or later it sort of it bites them in the, in the bum again but
1: um well you're you're right and, and sorry to talk over you there but with the the whole thing of well we all know that we don't apply common sense to to ourselves mm. if i said to any of the listeners of this if they're a runner mm. and that i wanted to just start running or i know somebody who wants to start running. And they want to get fit. So we're going to put a program together for them. And they're going to do it on Monday mm. for the next three weeks. Will that be enough to get them up for a 10K run? They'd look at you like you're a fool. Mm. Well, of course you need to do more than that. And the barest minimum I would suggest you need is a day on, day off, particularly as you're beginning, and it'll let, allow the body to uh, go through the training adaptation, recover, training stimulus, then recover, and so on. Well, the same thing applies for strength. And a cycle in terms of the body adapting is around about six weeks, four to six weeks Mm. work in general cycles. Mm. So that's why I have that deal with my patients and whatever that come to the clinic, that if you're going to go down the strength path, then you need to allow to be doing two to three times a week, and you need to do it consistently, Mm. and you need to follow that for a six-week period of time. And uh, I think that if you aren't getting a positive result from that, then you're either doing it totally incorrectly or the programs are done. But, yeah, yeah. it's more likely going to be incorrectly uh, administered. But it probably also sounds a little bit reckless, but I've got to say it at some point that for the athletes out there that are listening, that if you're not getting some form of little niggle or whatever, you're probably not training hard enough. Mm. Uh, you know, So it's about taking your body almost to its limit there and then backing off. And whilst, you know, we can talk about the mechanics and, and, and I obviously think that's vital, so too is the recovery. And I don't think that athletes, and, and the longer the athletes run, the, the the greater the distance, the less time they seem to spend on it. But the harder you train, it has to be the harder you need to recover. Otherwise, you're in this state of continual decline and ultimately your body's going to say, get stuffed. Yep. I'm going to have a rest.
0: Yep, yep yep again and again um yeah in my line of work as i do a bit of coaching and and i'm a personal trainer for most of my life but um there's a few things there that um sort of made me think and it's interesting you say you know about six weeks to get that adaptation process and um for some reason i've always uh, always said that um if i take on someone new or start them on a program i always say look we're not going to worry too much for the first four to six weeks because um uh, there's this adaptation process that needs to take place, which is pretty much what you said. And I used to use this analogy, and uh, it's a bit of a strange one if you can get it in your head. But you know, like like a huge big big ball, like the old lotto ball that they used to advertise, and and that that was rolling at a certain speed in the wrong direction. And when we first start training, we basically have to. Uh, Pitch ourselves against that, that rolling ball and slow down the speed of the ball, which is happening in the Ooh. first couple of weeks. And then we actually have to halt the speed of the ball, which is usually about a month. And then we need to start rolling that ball back in the right direction. And that's pretty much the way I used to explain it to them. And uh, so Ooh. they could sort of get it clear in their head. But And uh, just from, from personally, I know when I start a new strength conditioning um, or, or just tweak my training a little bit. Um, it usually takes about that time before I go Oh wow, I'm actually starting to see the results now. So, and and it's interesting you say that, and and to to you know to remind people that because clearly when people start something new, I mean even a runner who says, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna, uh, I've I've listened to uh, the Running Guy podcast, I listened to John Queen, he said get in the gym. They, they've got to understand that when they start doing that strength and conditioning, that they are going to have that muscle soreness, but that. Like you said, that that muscle soreness is, is a good thing. It's a, it's a sign that yeah. um, without that inflammation, without that damage to that muscle and belly, you're not going to get that, that that repair and that and that and that growth. Like you said, and that uh, absolutely, yeah, exactly, yeah,
1: yeah. Yep. No, that's that's your body giving you the signal that it's adapting to uh, to this whole process. But I think people generally don't listen to their body well enough. And I, I remember when I was first introduced by actually he's a um, a very, very um, world-renowned now uh, professor in the area of sports science. He's based here in Sydney at University of Technology, Aaron Coots. And I uh, involved Aaron in Essendon Footy Club. He subsequently got involved with Carlton Football Club, and he's been involved with different sporting groups and teams all around the world. But when he came in, it was almost too simple, this whole concept of radio-perceived exertion, or RPE, mm. where you simply have a scale from 1 to 10 – and you rate how you felt on that 10 being that you know I, that's the most extreme thing i've ever done through to one i should have just stayed in bed i suppose um but you just rate that by the duration so if you went for a 60 minute run and you multiply you you uh, rank yourself at six you just have six by 60 is 360 arbitrary units it's called and just graph and chart that mm. and you'll be able to see how your body's adapting to sessions uh, into the whole program over the course of whether that be a week a month or even a whole year, and I've now become such a fan of that that i I actually use it as part of my periodised plan to just monitor how my athletes are coping from that. And you know if people are interested in that, just just go on, onto the app store and find rate of perceived exertion or RPE. Mm. It's a fabulous tool and it's very underrated, and the most important thing about it, it's all about you, it's just your rate of how you perceive the effort that you put in. and yeah. if you're honest with yourself, um you're going to go a long way to preventing injuries.
0: No, no, I, I totally agree, um, you know, and obviously some people go, oh, it's not accurate, it's subjective, you know, someone's rate 6 will be different to someone else's 6, and I always say, well, it doesn't matter what someone mm. else rates that exercise as, it's it's what, you, you know what it felt like last time, and if it's harder, then you just go from a 6 to a 7, and then eventually you start to see that pattern, so it's all mm. about, and yeah, you're right, a lot of people don't aren't recording the, the way they feel um there's a bit of a message out there now um from from high performance coaches such as yourself and others to you know to, to put some sort of score even just write down how you felt you know where you're tired mm. and, and all the rest of it and even going as far as recording sleep patterns and, and nutrition um because as and I, I, I know i definitely want to talk with you um, further about this um because those things are so so important um like like you mentioned recovery now i'm gonna i'm gonna mm. come back to all that because it's um I know it's really, really, really big uh, for you that that topic, and I want to learn mm-hmm. more about it. But I want to head back to uh, to AFL because I'm just interested. Um, I'm a big AFL fan. I'm, I'm a swanny, Um but um, I just love the no, sport. Never mind. Yeah, I know. Definitely never mind. mind. Yeah, don't hang yeah, up yeah. on me. Um, it's yes, only because no, I... No, I
1: wouldn't hang up, but. I but I might be able to send you a couple of other enrolment forms <laughs> get The and the Giants to send you something,
0: mate. Yeah, yeah, look, I, it's just because I grew up, grew up there, mate, and um, it's all good, and when I lived in Melbourne, it used to give all the blokes down there um, something to, to complain about, so that, you know, so they hate <laughs> the swans down there, that's fair enough, um, but with, um, I mean, obviously, you, you've been there for, let's call it, uh, you know, 10, 15, 20 years mm-hmm. um, in the sport of AFL, so there. You must have observed, um, or maybe even implemented, um, within that time, uh, different processes in preparing a, a play for season. Um, you know, for the season, as far as you know, injury risk management and injury re- rehabilitation. Do Because the game's changed a lot. You know, I, I'm sure mm. you agree. So, do you actually have to go around preparing that play differently to what you did back, you know, in, in the early '90s? Or, or
1: oh yes, yep. oh, I think that our understanding of uh, of the Athlete is has changed But not only that The game has changed yep, yep. You know it's, it's a far more I think it's a far more Defensive game now I, I think even Four or five years ago It was far more Attacking game Which meant There was a lot more Aggressive running mm. Now in the game of AFL It's more a defensive thing So you've got to have A lot more isometric strength And mm. ability to hold your ground And probably a little bit more Need for agility From a standing start yep. is, uh, is more uh, A demand on it now But they, look The great blessing I had when I first went to Essendon I'd never even seen a game I'd never even watched a game on TV Uh, in the intro I said to you I'd I'd played rugby league I had no interest in AFL and I had a phone call out of the blue from a guy called Kevin Sheedy wanted to know if I would come there and how he'd identified me I was employed by the AIS in Canberra as a sprints coach and they put me on a secondment to Tasmania so I was down in Tasmania for six years as the head coach in the Tasmanian Institute of Sport And that was such a fabulous experience because it uh, exposed me to uh, not only having to um, put a program in place uh, in a state, but also I got to travel the world with and see some of the best uh, facilities and setups right across the world and meet some of the best people. But whilst I was in Tasmania, I did some consulting with other people in the programs. A lot of those were these young kids that were trying to uh, get picked up in the draft camp. Uh, for the AFL so I didn't really mind I just showed them how to do speed and change the direction and maybe modify their strength and you know a lot of these boys were going off and getting drafted and when they were saying what's happening in Tasmania you boys are getting a bit quicker uh, my name floated up to the top and uh, Kevin Sheedy had the foresight uh, to uh, give me a call and got he me to come to the Bombers that was at the end of 98 and mm. uh, in 99 we missed out on the grand final by one point, got picked by Carlton in the preliminary final, that's an experience that will never leave me yeah. uh, and then of course uh, we had the record breaking year in 2000 where and just dropped one game in the whole year and that was a surreal year because I was involved with the grand final and had a little bit of time to celebrate before I boarded the plane to Sydney to be involved in the opening ceremony and uh, the subsequent Olympic Games of 2000, where I was a sprints relay coach there and had a couple of athletes on the team. It was a it's almost a dream like when I look back on that, and the fact that it's 20 years ago is uh, frightening. But um, yeah, so I think not having had exposure to the AFL, I went into it with my eyes wide open to potential of what we could do, and I was blessed to have someone like Kevin Sheedy who. You know, thinks very laterally. A lot of people have said to me, you know, you guys think laterally. I used to think I'd go one way, she'd go the other, and we'd meet around the back. You know, it was uh, terrific. And he just empowered me as a young, high-performance coach to put these ideas in place. And um, I I can still remember um, James Hurd, who was a a Brownlow medalist and a superstar of the game. And and still to this day, you know, the name Hurd is one held in high regard in, in the AFL. And uh, James had been the captain of the SM Football Club, had broken down with a running injury, an abicular stress fracture, twice. And uh, when I got there, I was almost relieved that he had this injury because it was a running injury and I'd be able to have a role in uh, getting him back. So he did all the things I told him to do. And by the end of the um, you know season, things were looking good. He got onto the, the ground to play. And again, um, playing Carlton, uh, cracked the bone. And for the third time you know, at that time, this is back at uh ninety nine now, early ninety nine, you never came back from a nubicular stress fracture, you know, three times running. But in the recesses of my mind, um I remembered being in Germany and uh, met a guy there called Muller Wolfhart and they had this revolutionary new drug that they were using in Germany. And uh I arranged to go there, got that, got Therapeutics Goods Act approval, brought it back into Australia and uh they operated on James Heard's foot and put that um, um, osteoprotein one, it was called, into his uh, navicular, and uh, he never had a sore bone from that day forward in his foot, and of course captained the team the next year, and look, I probably got a lot of the credit for the rehab for, for that one, but uh, the reality was it was a, a very um, a new form of treatment that uh, the Germans had had, and if I hadn't been from my background in track and field, well maybe James Heard wouldn't have made it back into uh, AFL, but. Yeah, you know, that's the way it goes, and so those sort of things, thinking, bringing different things into the AFL, became very naturally for me. Mm-hmm.
0: And is that is that treatment still still around, or is that? Yeah, oh yep. yes. yeah. Okay. No,
1: no, that's a, for recurrent uh, bone injuries. That's yep. a that's a pretty common treatment now. Yep. You know, it's an old hat. But yep. uh, look, the, the other things I, I would think that um, I've, I've been able to influence in the AFL. I'm not saying people didn't do it before. But when I got to uh, S, I introduced them to hot coal tubs, and uh, they were getting in and out of hot and cold with a great deal of complaint, but uh, they did it because that was the nature of the game. And uh, they were at a point where they were redeveloping uh, the setup at Windy Hill, and uh, they allowed me to put in these big commercial hot coal tubs. And uh, so the bombers were doing that. And it was also at a time when uh, uh, what's now called Marvel Stadium uh, was being Built them the the bombers were the anchor tenants, so I was again able to influence that and get hot cold recovery tubs put into the facility uh, professionally done, mm. and uh, they're still there to this day. And of course that exposed all the other teams to this form of treatment. And uh, if you go around the world now, I think Australians are still regarded as the pioneers in that area. Um, I certainly didn't come up with the concept; I found it uh, when I was in my travels around the world. But uh, it's certainly become a very very common thing now to see in the AFL of uh, hot, cold, and even cold recovery uh, for players. And uh, yeah, I, I'm I'm quite proud of the fact that I was able to influence that in my time in the AFL.
0: Mm. Yeah, look, um, I was going to talk about it further on, but I'm going to talk about that now as far as the um, recovery modalities go in you know yeah. in the current time because there's a lot of discussion about it. What works, what doesn't, you know? Maybe some new new research coming out saying that what we thought was was good isn't. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, such as ice, such as heat, compression garments, foam rollers, mm-hmm. you know, getting massages and all that. So, so what? So obviously, you, you know, the, the 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 cold hot is sort of like a flushing, isn't it? It's sort of yes,
1: yeah. It's, it's more if you're sore after yep. you've, as like, I say, a player's played a game or you've been on a. A long runner, you might have done a high intensity interval session mm. um, that it can be good for that so you know you you get in the hot and then cold probably 30 seconds on each uh, up to a minute mm. uh, and then uh, you'd finish on the cold and what that does is it, it um dilates um dilates the vessel and then you know it restricts and so that forces waste product through so mm-hmm. you know the theory being that that'll uh you know get those waste products out of the system sooner yeah Uh, there's also if you're in in cold there is an anti-inflammatory effect on that if that is the issue if you've got micro tears then that is going to uh, assist in that that type of thing but like you said there it is a a constantly evolving thing and and i think it's also a personal thing and um, i'm really fortunate now the squad i've got I, i almost feel like i'm the head of the united nations at the moment i've got athletes from all parts of the world in my squad here in sydney and what I what's reinforcing more and more to me is different people respond to recovery differently. Yep. So you can't say, oh, hot coals related a load of crap. You know, I tried it and it was hopeless. Well, maybe that's correct for you. Mm. But for the next person, it is absolutely fantastic. And, and on it goes. So when you talk about... You know, compression garments, foam rollers, dry needling, acupuncture, uh, stretching, whatever it might be, I think you should try those things. And what I developed for my athletes here and anyone listening, I'm more than happy if you want to email me, I'll send it to you. I, I put together a, a thing called pick a box recovery and I challenge them to get 150 points a week and they have to choose different forms of uh, recovery to get that uh, in a course of a given week. And by doing that, then the athletes able to work out what works better for them uh than than other forms and another side of that too um you know what we're talking about i've, I've just come from doing some speed agility with a, an up-and-coming tennis player and he was talking about i asked him what he was going to do for his recovery and he said that he was going to go home um and try a salt bath and i had been talking to him about Epsom salt being a good form of uh, a relaxant for some people so he's going to put a packet of Epsom salts in a hot bath and just soak the afternoon away, Mm. which is probably a fantastic form of recovery, and Mm. I'd I'd recommend that to people. But if he was going to go to a competition, say in January, and he's got to perform tennis on the Saturday afternoon and then back up to the semi-final on the Sunday morning, I wouldn't recommend that he go soaking up in the atmosphere in an Epsom salt bath. Uh, I'd be doing hot coals so that it almost invigorates his body for the next day. Sure. So, yep. again, you would try that. You'd try and work out, well, what's best for me and what's, what's, what's going to benefit me to get uh, the best result? And you certainly wouldn't leave it until you know the time of the major competition to do it. You do it now. Make it a part of your overall program. It's not something you add on. It's integral to your program. Recovery should be integral to what you're doing to enable you to perform at your best the next session. You know, there's a Greek philosopher around a few years ago now, his name was Hesoy. He said that if you do a little upon a little upon a little, it becomes a lot. And I take that philosophy into my trading. If you just do the little things consistently well over time, it becomes a very significant advantage that you have that those who cut corners didn't. Mm,
2: mm.
0: Now, I look, I, I like that message. I like – um, and I remember asking uh, yeah a physio about about putting ice on something not long ago, and he said, does it work? Do you get a response from it? And I said, yes. And he said, we'll do it. Um, mm. And if I had said no, he would have said, well, don't do it. And pretty mm. much what you're saying there, um, you know, if it works, that's the most important thing, you know. And also from a mental point of view, you know, if, if like just say going into a race and you have this ritual you do a couple of days leading into it and you do all these, um, you know, foam rolling, whatever it might be, and if you feel yeah. it's making a difference, then that uh, psychologically is also, you know, a fantastic uh, edge as well, even if it's, yeah. um, you know, even if it may not be doing something, if you believe that it's doing something, then, then that's, that's still an advantage.
1: Yeah, well, I personally, from a coaching point of view, I think the great advancements in performance are going to come from a greater understanding of neural training mm. and how we uh, get the neural system to recover faster. Mm. And I haven't noticed that with the hot, coal stuff, that that has a definite impact on the n- neural system. Mm. I'm not saying that's the only way, but mm. it certainly is a way. Um, also things like dry needling that physios do use a lot Mm. and it's it's nothing new go back a couple of thousand years and Mm. uh, you know the Chinese are doing acupuncture Um, you know I think that anything that can uh, influence the neural system that's where the future is going to be and I also feel that nutrition and particularly in and around gut health is going to uh, have a much bigger role to play over the next 20 years in the way that we prepare athletes not only for training and competition but uh, also for the recovery aspect of things
0: yeah. I think
1: we're just I think we're just starting to scratch the surface
0: Yeah, yeah, I, I think you're right. I think sometimes we've been uh, focusing on on the wrong areas um, I'm just halfway through a book now um, As you know, they are calling you know, the gut the second brain and uh, it's something mm-hmm. we've overlooked and um, I've uh, I had a lot of problems with GI uh, Issues uh, in racing usually the really long stuff and um so I'm trying to work that out So you're reading through a couple of books on, on GI and the gut and all the rest of it and I do find it interesting
1: and well, mate, oh. I, I, got, um, I got wiped out here um, several years ago now by an autoimmune disease, which I didn't see coming. And I believe it was brought on by extreme stress through a marriage breakdown. Mm. And, mate, it just, it, I lost seven years of my life in terms of memory. It, it, the, what I had was a thing called limbic encephalitis, and it's where the immune system turned on my brain. And it was literally that my brain was on fire I'd had multiple seizures, and I was left with lesions on my brain. And the the immediate impact of that was memory, where, I was, as I said, I lost seven years of memory. Mm. And um, it also affected my sense of smell and taste, a bit of vision in my eye. I become super emotional, whether that be, you know, anger or crying, and I'd swing between each. I spent over a year in care. Um, and, uh, look, I've been fortunate to come out the other side of that. But the point of telling you that was that I was, um, at one point, was on about 19 tablets a, a day to control the condition that I had. Mm. And the specialist, the neurospecialist was telling myself and my family that I was going to be on that dosage for the rest of my life. And I just figured there's no way I was going to be doing that. And um, I, I've i questioned nutrition uh, a lot and, uh, and dietitians and nutritionists. I've questioned it a lot. And... I figured that if I was going to get my brain health back, I needed to exercise my brain just like I would any other muscle in my body. And uh, that was through uh, making it retain things and uh, uh, forcing it to learn. So I enrolled myself in a post-grad nutrition course at Deakin University and uh, set about pretty much my agenda was to learn about the anti-inflammatory properties of food. Now, I'm down the track a little bit on that, and I've come a, come a long way. The most important part of that story is I'm down now to from the 19 tablets a day to half a tablet a day, and I'm still pretty uh, boy boyish about, oh, sorry, bullish about um, getting rid of that half a tablet. But for now, I'll, I'll go with half a tablet. Mm. But I believe a lot of that's been driven by my food selection and food choice. And then that links into that discussion we've just started on with the gut health and what our gut demands in terms of. Uh, whether you know sugary foods refined foods processed foods and what that's actually doing to our overall health i think that side of things that's where i'm really was going with the um, advancements it's in in around that that i think we're going to make big breakthroughs in terms of sport performance and recovery over the next 20 years in that neural and gut health is where it's going
0: yeah yeah i I hope so and um yeah I, i think you might be right with that and uh and it's sort of nearly, it's, it's weird, it's sort of like going back to where we should have been decades ago, like, you know, we may, maybe we overlook the obvious sometimes, um, and, and as far as, I mean, there are people out there that are, are eating cleaner food and, and all, all the rest of it, um, but there are still, and I know myself, I'm still trying to you know, find that exact food that sometimes, I mean, you might eat something, you might get a little bit of a, a minor response, you don't think nothing of it, but... Um, but uh yeah try eliminating something and, and see if it makes a difference um
1: yeah. and and you've got to go back to that old six week rule i think that mm. you've got to give it time to work through the system And mm. be part. you can't just say well you know i'm going to have this type of diet and try it for a week or two. Oh no that's too hard mm. i won't do that uh you know it's got to become part of your whole thing i i with my squad that i have i have a, an acronym that we use and it's not um, a, a coincidence that, that it's CNN mm. So when I say CNN to you I would imagine that you're thinking of cable news Network in the States and quite Often you know CNN will pop up on your Television screen you know there's been a landslide In Venezuela or you know another um, uh, Unfortunate incident Somewhere else in the world and CNN Will have ticker tape across the bottom Of the screen when that's happening I want to be in my athlete's head The C stands for consistency mm. N no compromise mm. N no doubt if you want to get results, you've got to train consistently well all of the time. Mm. If you want to get results, you cannot compromise your training. You can't say, well, I'm going to be have a clean diet, but, oh, just this once, I'm going to go out and try that. And, so no, you're going to have a, you know, it's, it's a boy's night. You're yourself. And then N stands for no doubt. that what you're doing is going to result in what you want it to do. So the acronym for my squad is CNN, and that applies for how they eat, how they train, how they recover how they live their life
0: yep yep and and generally what when you when you hear or see what what the elite and what the best in the world are doing they are doing those things you know what i mean so well
1: you know you've got to to be elite Mm. you've got to be different to everybody else you've Mm. got to do things differently to how other people do it Mm. and to a higher level um and most people can't do that and that's why they're not elite they've got a they've got uh elite dreams but not elite action Mm. and uh you know a lot of people uh, again i say to my athletes you've got to learn to dream with your eyes open so many people are dreaming with their eyes shut that's because they're asleep you know open your eyes and get on with it but if you're fed income you can do this it's just about making the right choices and consistently not compromising no doubt go for it
0: yeah yeah mate let's if i if i walked into your clinic tomorrow what's going to happen like, I just want to go back to what you're actually doing there for the runs yeah. that are listing. Obviously, you're looking at, at gate patterns and, and all the rest of that. Yeah. So are there, are there are there any, I mean, generally, I I, I love watching people run. I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm working at, uh, outdoors and I'm seeing people running. I'm in an area where people are constantly running past me. So yeah. I can't help but look at people running past. And I can see generally a lot of, of um, familiar movement patterns that, that are so wrong, Um Yes. Whether they know it or not, so so you must see some obvious ones there. But if I was to ask you, what are the what are the biggest ones that you know you're going to see yeah. practically before you actually even put them on the treadmill?
1: Yeah, yeah, no, it's a good question. Uh, and uh, can I say that I don't analyse their running on a treadmill? Mm-hmm. I, I a treadmills are fantastic if you're on a cruise ship and you've got no other choice. Yep. Other than that, go past the treadmill and get out in the real world and run. Uh, that's where the real mechanics come. The, the ground doesn't move underneath you. If, if you are going to run on a treadmill or, mm. you know, you're in a sporting professional organisation, then you go for something like a woodway treadmill, which is a kerb like a jelly bean shape. So that then imitates uh, the natural mechanics of uh, of movement. But otherwise, I, I think, uh, personally, I think analysing running gait on a, on a treadmill is a nonsense. It's one of ignorance. Okay. And so I'll get the people out and I'll video them from side on, mm-hmm. from behind and in front, and I think it's important that you can communicate that back to that individual so they can see it and then they've got some buy-in and talk about what we're going to do to change that. Mm. So to answer your question, one are the most common things you see, well, what I'm seeing a lot of is that people have got their posture. So if you think of the upper back where you're sort of hunched over – and now a lot of people are at computer screens all day. This is my theory. They're at computer screens all day, or they're on their phones texting. Have a Next time you're on the bus or the train, have a look around at what people are doing. Mm-hmm. Most of them are hunched over their phone, um, you know, texting, and look at their posture of their back. And so most people are quite um, uh, weak in their upper back and quite um, tight in their chest. So you've got to strengthen what you stretch and stretch what you strengthen. So in this case, strengthen the upper back. It opens up your chest for the longer-distance runners, too. It'll give you greater volume of air capacity coming in, potentially. And so it gets you into a better position. But mechanically for running, it allows a freer range of running from your arms. If you have got um, inwardly rotating shoulders, so they're like coming in towards you, then um, your arms are likely going to swing across your body. So if your arm's swinging across the midline of your body, that's going to force you to rotate when you run. So your upper body's going to rotate. It will also make the lower, for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. So if your right arm swinging across your body, you can bet your bottom dollar that the left arm is also swinging towards the midline of the body or has got an excessive recovery rate. So to fix those things, strengthen the upper back, to pull the arms back, to stop the shoulders internally rotating so that it's straighter. Um, just go for the big rocks, probably looking at that one. The other area that's, a, you know, probably seven out of ten people that I see, it's what we call the posterior chain. People are weak in their low back. They're weak in their glutes. They're weak in their hamstrings. And those areas, you can strengthen them with exercises like bridging or use a Swiss ball and do a um, uh, a Swiss ball leg curl. Uh, Look, there's a host of different things you can do. Strengthen up your low back. Stabilise it. You know, people have got sore backs and they're they're saying, oh, no, it's genetic, my my father had a sore back, so, you know, it's probably always destined to, please. It's, you know, you might might have some sort of predisposition to it, but, you know, you can change that if you um, get strength balanced there in the low back, glutes and hamstring. We've also, in my experience, got uh, overactive. The the glutes are made up of three muscles, gluteus maximus, medius and minimus. And Max does all the work. It's like the bully of the triad. It's the other two that need to do the work, particularly if you're a runner. You need to get minimus and medius working, and there's just fine control movements in there. Um, you talked earlier about you know, some of the changes that I brought into, um, into AFL, and one of the things that I, I'm quite sure that I brought into AFL back in the very late 90s, early 2000s, was Pilates. I can still remember going to Kevin Sheedy you know, with the Sheets, and he looked at the Sheets. He said, what the hell is this Pilates? And, uh, Pilates is now a common part of the strength program for, for, um, a footballers and for athletes. And I think it's important that you get a clinical Pilates instructor. So clinical Pilates is a physio, uh, trained, a physio trained in Pilates. And it's actually started as a strengthening program for dancers, um, a number of years ago. It's certainly again nothing new, but it gives you that controlled movement especially through the core and especially through that glute area. So, you know, if people are having issues there, then I would say do your strength session, do it three times a week and make one of those a Pilates-type session. The other area that I see a lot of issues are going to be knee, uh, the inside of the knee usually, and shin, where people are getting issues through there. And that was invariably going to come about through joint stability in a lot of cases, uh, particularly, again, through the hip, but also it may be from the ankle. So I work a lot around that. At the end of a training session with the squad of athletes that I train, if people ever come to watch my training sessions, you'll notice that at the end of the session, I'll get my athletes to take their shoes off and they'll go for uh, a couple of laps walk as part of their warm-down in bare feet. The reason why we do that, I want to strengthen and stretch their feet, particularly around the plantar fascia, the uh, bottom of the foot, and make sure that the... Um, uh, their feet are mobile, and I also like to run them in sand for that very reason also, to give them um, uh, the ability to actually use their feet and strengthen up their feet. It's such a vital part of running, yet we're almost in shoes that are over-engineered and stop the feet from doing what they're actually designed to do. So strengthen up your feet. And you can do exercise, even even rolling up a towel with your toes, uh, silly as that sounds, can strengthen up your feet. So I, I get my athletes to do that sort of stuff as well.
0: Okay, let's um, sort of narrow in a little bit more on, on that. So in the gym, um, actually, there's a couple of ways I want to go here. One is strengthening strengthening your glute with with you know, say barbell squats and and um, you know doing some good pistol squats if you have those capabilities and range of motion. But it just say well, you go into the gym and you you're certainly building strength into your glute doesn't necessarily transfer over into being Stronger as a runner if you're not no, no, using don't. that glute, yeah. so that's sometimes where that where that transaction can get lost. And I, I, when I'm doing my research for this interview, I heard you uh, discuss that, and and I thought that was great. So I want to touch on that as well. Um, I think you said something along the lines of it's you know in AFL, you know people. Are so focused on how much that you know they're squatting and how much they're pressing but if that doesn't sort of carry over to increased um performance on the field then what's the use so so yeah. Yeah, let's talk about that one
1: yeah there's a there's a bit of a diminishing returns isn't there i, mm. I think you know it's easy to get carried away with how much you can squat mm. but if it's not functional movement that you're doing for me the squats almost like turning the muscle on mm. uh to what you know to its maximum uh excitability but then what do you want it to do? So I'll, I will often do, we, we call them supersets, and so they'll do a, a squat. But then what's the function? Well, for a runner, I think you should be looking at doing things like step-ups. So you, I, they don't have to be weighted. It could be quite an explosive, dynamic step-up. It could be lunges. It could even be bounding, box jumps, something that's functional and dynamic movement, utilising the glutes and hamstrings for that. Then go back to the squat and do the number of reps that you are being prescribed for that then come back again and do your box jumps or your bounding Mm. or hopping. Um, You know, going back again when I was with the Bombers, one of the first things I did with that redesign of the gym was we put in Olympic lifting platforms so that they could do explosive dynamic lifts. But I also put in a synthetic athletics track, and a lot of people thought that, you know, that was just because I was trying to hang on to my past as a track coach. But I wanted them to be able to do the squat or clean or whatever it was they were doing, then go up onto the track and do an explosive expression of movement using the muscles that you've just decided or just turned on and so yeah i'm very much into that even for a rehab program look at the essence of movement the muscles you want to use be that a squat and then look at how you're going to express that in a movement and as people become better at the lifting that they're doing then i would um, get them to do more complex lift like a power clean or a split snatch or whatever that might be but i don't think you've got to do that even even in the most basic programs or the most advanced programs i believe that you should start your warm-up by activating and switching on for want of a better term sometimes i hate that term but getting those muscles ready for what you're going to do and that might be doing some uh, lying on your side and doing some lateral flutters to get the glutes working using a um, theraband above your knees um, and doing crab walks Mm. uh, and around your ankles for that matter uh, doing all sorts of movement using TheraBand. Therapy is, is a marvellous little tool. I think uh, a lot of people probably discovered TheraBand with COVID-19 because they can't get to the gym. <laughs> yeah. But uh, it's, a, it's a great tool, and I think you can um, do activation work before you get into your session proper.
0: Yep, yep, definitely for sure, um, and um, runners know that um they're just not doing it guys so get that little uh, mini band set um i order them off ebay they turn up at the door for about 15 bucks you get six different resistance bands so they're so cheap yeah. it's just a matter of um implementing and doing it and we all know we need to do it and i tell you what it makes a difference um generally you know i do a bit of, bit of a warm-up and, and then do that let's use that word activation with the uh, mini bands and um and then and then do some some run-throughs and when you actually do your efforts it's amazing the difference it makes because it's like it's ready to go it's sort of like you have yeah. turned it on the word activated is good because it's it's, it's sort of ready to go and so yeah. that, that means you're going to get more quality out of your session and i just believe because it's it's you know your body is not going to compensate for those first couple of reps because you know it just it wasn't ready for that load but if you've sort of yeah. you know sort of like tapped it on the shoulder and said okay guys this is what's coming up by activating it it just it just makes a hell of a lot more sense to do that
1: well that's right and it, it allows you to uh to strengthen in, in a certain range, which is also uh, an important thing. Like when I'm talking about this strength to you or any of the programs that I mm. put together from for whoever, I like it to be functional. So what's the functional outcome that I want mm. from this program? And you know, when you look at the human body, you know, we're talking about physiology, um, of a male body, it's around sixty percent of the male body's water. Uh female, you know, even a little bit more than that. So if more than fifty you know, sixty percent of us is water, then, you know, I I use an analogy with my athletes. It's like um, a stream. The stream follows the path of least resistance. And if there's a great big rock there, the stream will go around it and keep going, and it'll just carve out a path of least resistance. Our bodies do exactly the same thing when we move. And if your boulder, your rock in the stream, is a tight low back, well, then you're going to change the movement pattern that you have To compensate for that boulder that's there, rather than move the boulder, just go around it. Your body is 60% water; it'll go the path of least resistance. Mm -hmm. You've got to get in there and functionally redesign the pathways within your body. And I believe you do that with the strengthening. So switching the muscle on again with an exercise. Let's use the analogy of the squat again, and then do the movement pattern that you want. Be that running, or a drill, or an explosive movement in the manner that you want it to be done. I just think for my for the bodies that I'm coaching don't take no for an answer. I've got a vision of what I want that body to move like, how I want that body to move down the track with efficiency. Then I've got to make sure that I keep tending the pathways that are there and uh, get the pathways with the least amount of resistance possible.
2: Yeah, yeah.
0: And certainly sprinting would keep you honest because there, there's no room for failure there. It's 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 basically biomechanics and movement. You know, at its best, well, isn't it? Um, yeah,
1: absolutely. I, I call sprinting. It's the most simple complex skill that there is. Mm. I mean, everybody can run. If you if you go down to the shopping centre later, you'll see some two year old trying to out sprint their mother. You know, giggling with delight as they get away. And they, you know, they're running. They just go for it. Anyone can run. But it becomes complex when you've got to do that with a with a certain execution, timing, and replicate it precisely over and over and over and over again. That's the complexity of sprinting at the highest level. So take the most simple skill and make it complex, but more importantly, take a simple skill and make it the complex perfect. And to do that, it's got to embrace everything, whether that be the training loads that you're doing, the strength loads that you're doing, the recovery loads, the repeatability of what you're doing. It it all becomes one. And if you're going to embrace it to it's full, then I think you've got to tick all of those boxes.
0: Yep. Um, now I'm just thinking. Let's just use this as an example. In the I'm in the gym. I'm doing jump squats with like a, a weighted weighted bag over my shoulders. You know, like those mini um, mm-hmm. punching bags, yep. So, 15 kilo weighted bag over my shoulders and doing jump squats. Now, do do I go for three sets of 15? Right now, 15 is extremely fatiguing. Struggling to get through it. Or do I just go to fatigue? The reason I ask that is because. Sometimes I think, you know, the, the numbers are good because it gives us structure to go on and I'm just actually thinking when I'm doing this, you know, you get to 12 and you can hardly get your feet off the ground to finish off that set. When do you say that I've got the training benefit and stimulus I'm after and trying to do more is of no benefit or is there benefit to completely exhaust that, that muscle to fatigue? Um,
2: yeah.
1: Yeah, well, I think it depends so much upon what it is that you're actually training for, and why mm. would you do that? Mm. You know, at what point are you going to have to be able to do replicated jumps mm. uh, in a state of fatigue? And you might say, well, if I've got to be in soccer and I might have to head the ball under after being out there for ninety minutes, and the ball's coming in, and I've got to be able to uh, uh, jump again, a repeated jump after multiple, then you could probably mount a case for that. Uh, my my. I still wouldn't accept it, to be honest. Mm. And I, I think that uh, if you're doing 15 jumps, say, repeated jumps on there, uh, as you're getting towards probably after eight, you're starting to do them with poor form and it's slowing down. So you're starting to jump as fast as you can, as slowly as possible. And straight away, that doesn't make sense. So I think you're better to do it uh, to its highest level and then uh, and try to then get that so it's repeatable. Once you've got that, then you start to uh, put it in so you do get your volume by spreading it out through the through the training stimulus. But I think it would it, – I'd be very open to someone coming up with a challenge for that, given the circumstance that they're on. Uh, you know, you might be in a workplace and you've got to do particular activities that you've got to do that to a state of fatigue. Uh, firefighting springs to mind, for example. So there may be uh, an example where you may have to put that in. But I think that you prescribe that for what the individual needs. I'll get an athlete to come in and, you know, as well as the postural and the movement analysis, we'll also start looking at what is it that you need to succeed or ask them, who do you most admire in the sport or the event that you're doing? And they'll rattle off, a, you know, a couple of, two or three people and then ask them, what is it that that person's not, you don't have? And that will divulge to you the area of weakness that that person needs to, to work on. Now, if that happens to be uh repeated repeated endurance activity that's explosive well then by all means go for your um 15 rep sand jump but whatever it might be i think you'll mm. be able to find what what it is that you need to do mm.
2: Mm.
0: yeah I, I was just thinking more, more the benefits of obviously um like you say you get to number eight um a lot of lactic acid going on there heart rates up through the roof mm. Um, and then it just becomes a mental thing. I'm just thinking from a physiological point of view, from actual training effect point of yeah. view, obviously, you know, loading up all the tendons and all the rest of it, that plyometric, it's quite quite a solid um, exercise. So I understand what you're saying, but, you know, as far as, say, distance running goes and, and you actually have to be out I mean, it's obviously not exactly specific to running
1: but Mm. it's still
0: Mm. it's running is a series of jumps for multiple times isn't it we are jumping
1: well well they're getting that when they run i mean you've got uh you know uh, up to 10 times your body weight going through your joints Mm. when you're running i mean it's quite quite a massive lot of uh force going through there Mm. but going back on your example Mm. you know rather than do 15 reps on there i'd probably do something like six or eight Mm. with a sandbag and then do a number of jumps without the sandbag, so it, it's more. You might have a, re, a reduced resistance. So you might go back to your theraband again mm-hmm. and do the do it with a lesser resistance, and then do the last set with no resistance, so that you, you're upping the ante each time you go, and you're going to have a greater recruitment demand because of that initial load that you put in there. Mm-hmm. That, that that would be my approach to that. But you know, I make no apology for the fact that my background comes from uh, from explosive movement i'm a sprints coach yep. but i've worked in the endurance area of athletes and really it's uh, uh the mechanics shouldn't change a great deal when you're talking about efficiency it's just uh in sprinting it's just more pronounced that's all they're just uh you know bigger engines they just don't go for as long
0: yeah yep, yep, for sure um and the rest periods is that important to get right or mm-hmm. it's as long as you're in the ballpark like
1: no i think it's vital to get it right and i think it also changes uh for each individual again and rest periods you know if you if you're working with a large group uh just uh logic tells you that you're going to have a recovery period of time depending on what it is that you've done if you if you're doing uh intervals on the track for example uh and you want to get a maximum recovery well and so to, to keep the quality in the session, you're probably going to have a six-minute recovery, again, depending on the distance and the speed that you've done. Mm. But I would also be using heart rate. And, uh, you know, if you sort of go on the old uh, um, 220 beats minus your age and and work in there, I'd normally have a recovery heart rate around about that 120 to 130 before they go again. So it's an incomplete recovery that you're doing. But it's a, it's such a um, an area where... You, I think you've got to dig down into what are we talking about here? Are we talking about a sprinter, a 1,500-metre runner, or a marathon runner? Because all of those sort of things are going to change in and around your application of of that. Um, One of the big things that's been happening over the last 10 years is um, uh, high-intensity intermittent training, where you're changing not only the recovery length, but also the type of exercise that that follows it. So you're keeping the body constantly adapting, I mean, there was a period of time where we went through doing the same type of exercise with the same level of recovery after each one and adapted the athlete that way. And the only reason we got a change was we take the volume out so therefore the intensity would go up. Well, now we're mixing volumes and intensity up and uh, I believe that we're getting better results and probably lower injuries from observation from doing just that.
0: Yep, yep. Um, for runners when they're doing the strength and conditioning program, if they're looking at on a, just say a calendar year, should they be always doing just your, your normal um, you know, weighted um, barbell press and Romanian deadlifts or whatever it might be as well as their sort of plyometric type work with the mini bands and therabands, like sort of always be doing them both? Or is there a certain time of year where you should just be focusing on just building that muscular strength into, in, into the muscles and, and the tendons as well as, or, yeah. or how do you sort of go about that?
1: yeah well there there was an old adage years ago again it's it's just a you know a bit of a a fun to hang your hat on i suppose but you wouldn't do plyometrics until you could squat one and a half times your body weight so that pretty much automatically ruled out every kid in the country because you know they they were too young to be doing that Mm. yet if you went to school playground there they'd be doing skipping Mm. so they're doing plyometrics in the playground so there goes that that theory um, plyometrics as you're suggesting in terms of you know you're bounding and hopping and single leg hops and box jumps and depth jumps that type of thing mm. i think you've got to be technically so sound and, and you do need a fairly good strength base underneath you the surfaces have to be so good your footwear has to be so good for me it was always brought with danger and it would be one thing that i'd try to bring into my programs as my athletes were peaking towards that latter part and I used to sometimes hold my breath because you spend all of this time getting your athlete ready for the big occasion and only to get injuries and niggles and things from this sudden leap in intensity at the end. So as a consequence now, I incorporate my plyometrics into the program from the very beginning. So when they're doing, say, um, their 8 to 10 squats in the gym in a preparatory phase, I would still do box jumps or even bounding in that early early stage of the program. And then what I manipulate is the intensity of the session by uh, taking volume out and increasing the speed of execution or the rate at which they're contacting the ground or whatever it might be. Mm. So I mix it up an awful lot, rather than having uh, a set this and a set that. But also the variety that you're having in there and the type of strength that you're having in there, particularly for the distance community. They've been doing hills for years and the type of hill reps that you're doing, that's going to also, that's a different type of strength. So a steep hill is more to do with strength endurance. If you've got a lower gradient hill, say less than six degrees uh, over 60 to 80 metres, then that's going to be speed endurance type training for a distance run or even a, a quarter miler in sprinting. So the, that's, a, that's a strength session in itself. Earlier I talked about incorporating other modalities such as Pilates. So strength can be not just in the gym. And, you know, I think a lot of people get carried away with how much they can squat. Yet I ask them, how much can you actually do? Can you do with three chin-ups? And they can't do a chin-up. Yet when you're running, your mechanics are driven by your arm action. That, that'll that determine your leg drive. So if you've got no upper body strength and balance, how are you going to go? So I'd be incorporating body weights in there as well mm. um, as, as doing weights. So I think it's it comes down to what you've got access to. Uh, your level of development that you're at and the facilities you've got and the expertise of the people that are in the gym looking at you and working with you. It was interesting before when you mentioned about the, the squat. Very rarely do I give my athletes squats where they're putting a bar on their back because of the compressive forces of the bar on their back. You mentioned putting a sandbag on it and I'm immediately more comfortable with that type of um, aspect. Then you start introducing things like, you know, repeated jumps and the compressive forces on the spine. Um, Yeah, I I get um, a little bit windy. Again, going back to what we talked about, I think the future of training is in the neural aspect of training. So when you're starting to compress the neural pathways on the spine, uh, I get a little bit worried about that for my explosive dynamic sprinters.
0: Yeah. Yep. Okay. Now you touched on the the um, the stability thing, and obviously as runners, we're always we're mid air, then we come down on one leg. So there's obviously mm-hmm. we need a lot of strength there, um, mm-hmm. but we need a lot of stability. And you mentioned there um, like the glute medius, which is obviously um, a pretty big major component for hip stabilization there. So like you said, very important for runners to to do, like um, like with those crab walks with with the bands and that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So. So would, would you recommend, like, for runners rather than doing, say, um, you know, uh, a, a single squat, one leg squat, do it um, possibly like on a Bosu ball or a wobble board or a wobble cushion or something to bring that instability in? Or do you feel it's not necessarily so important?
1: No, I, I, I actually think they're two different exercises. One's, yep. uh, one's just for balance. And in many respects, it's pretty much good if you're in a circus act. You know, as balancing on a BOSU ball and a Swiss ball on one leg, mm. I mean, I, I, I think that's going to the absolute extreme mm. in terms of running, and it's not the same dynamics. I think they'd be better doing proprioception work. So proprioception is knowing where you are in time and space. So doing a single leg hop and then balancing on that one foot would be better than just, uh, you know, trying to balance on a P, and saying, I oh, look at me. Mm. But I also think you've got to put your foundation strength in place. So do your strength work in the gym, whether that be a goblet squat holding a weight in front of you so you're not compressing your spine, or doing leg press, and then doing stability work, proprioception work, factoring all of that in. I just think strength work has to be holistic. It's not necessarily something extra that you're doing in there. It's built into your program proper, and all the movement stuff should be built into... The strength program and i i'm even more um I, I feel even more strongly about that when we're talking about distance runners because i think, think that it's that getting that functional strength base there and then basically showing the body how to express that movement and that can be helped with stability exercises and with better stability in the ankle and so on so, yes, I'd, yeah. I'd be uh, cooperating that. And sorry, just just on that, the other thing that I've got my guys doing a lot of and have done for many years, and uh, any people that might be listening to this that I used to work with at uh, Essendon Footy Club, they'll be having uh, probably a nightmare recall when I start talking about medicine ball training. Again, nothing new. It's been around for 100 years. But using medicine ball for functional strength expression is a very effective way for getting better movement patterns in your athletes. But you should still have your underlying strength balanced and making sure that your body is in balance. We talked before about posture. Just take a photo of yourself or your athlete. Uh, you're just in their shorts. And look at the structure of the back. And look if the shoulder sits up a little bit higher on one side. See if you can pick the side that's a dominant side. Well, if you're an elite athlete, I don't believe you should have a dominant side like that. And you can get that strength back. Don't worry about being in the gym, worrying about how much that you can bench press. Get in there and do a unilateral bench press where you've got a dumbbell in each hand and you're going for the balance in there. Once you've got that strength levels there, then bring in your bench press and do that. If you want to bring in a multifactorial way of expressing that, then put them on a Swiss ball and do a unilateral bench press on there whilst you're also going to be working that posterior chain that we talked about before, low back, glutes and hamstrings. They're going to be singing a, uh, an ensemble for you down there um, trying to keep your balance on the Swiss ball. Your core is going to be, um, your um, uh, abs are going to be fired up for you whilst you're working through getting balance in your upper body just as you would when you're running. Again, get yourself into that base of uh, strength and then look at the manner in which you can make this as functional as possible. Mm. And then once you've got that in place, then go for your run and look at your time's drop. Yeah, yeah, for sure.
0: Now, um, why do you think, I mean, would you agree that as far as distance running goes, strength and conditioning and runners getting in the gym is pretty poor and it always has been, whereas other sports, oh, well, it's I been part it, of the program. Yeah, what do you think?
1: I, but I think for running... Well, I think for running, it's a little bit different. I think a lot of it's been born out of ignorance, and I think part of it comes from the strength and conditioning community, where that's been their niche area, where they're working with that. And the easiest way to gauge whether you're any good at that is to have muscle built on muscle. And you know, the the pictures of you know the guys with their shirts off and uh, you know and pecs to die for and and abs that you could grate cheese on. That's sort of been the whole thing, but. It's the strength that you don't see that's important. And for endurance runners particularly, it's not about being built like Adonis. It's about having the functional control that Adonis would envy. And they still need to get that strength stuff in there. But the distance community, I feel, shy away from that for two reasons. One, they're intimidated by that environment because of the meatheads that are in there quite half the time. And also... The basic premise of elite distance running is a thing called VO2 max, your ability to utilize oxygen. And part of that relates to your weight. A distance runner does not want to put on a, a great deal of muscle mass. And if they do that, then their efficiency levels can be thrown out. So they go into the gym, but they're not done properly. It's structured up by someone who's judging the effectiveness of it by how much muscle they put on. Rather than how much body balance have I been able to bring about, and when their muscle mass goes up, their VO2 comes down. So they're they're the best looking physical loser on the track. They give the give the strength stuff away just when what they needed to do was now refine that and uh, get the get your focus should be on strength, not not muscle growth. And that all comes down to the type of lifting that you're going to be doing. And if you're going to go into uh, your reps of say 15 reps and above you're not going to put on much muscle or what we call hypertrophy in there but if you're going to drop down to 12 10 8 and maybe even into the realm of six repetitions then you probably are going to be putting on a lot of muscle mass and if you're going to go down lower you're going to have such excessive weight that the movement expression of that is going to be so slow i think it defeats the purpose for a distance around myself
0: Yeah. Yeah. yep okay now um you're just going to start a new role uh, as a, coach, a coaching advisory role over there, Athletes mm. Australia. So what are you trying to bring to the table over there?
1: Well, what I hope what I'm going to bring to the table is what they want to be put on the table. I think we've got to take the opportunity to step back here in this country and say where are we going in terms of our coaches and coach education uh, for, for our athletes and what When I look at the number of coaches that have been coming through, like the coaching accreditation system of uh, Australian Track and Field Coaches Association, ATFCA, it's pretty much been um, sidelined. And Athletics Australia have moved in there and, and putting in their own structures of coach education. It is a fantastic time. It's the best opportunity we've had for many years in this country to identify what needs to be educated to potential coaches So we've got a philosophy for coaching across the country that this is what we should be doing with our young kids as we come through and this is what we should be doing with our teenagers to keep them in there. We should be trying to make our athletes athletic. Don't worry about whether they're a 200-metre runner or an 800-metre runner or a shot putter when they're 10. Let them be kids and let them be athletes and teach them how to move. I want to be able to bring that to this coach advisory board so we can get a philosophy in this country that every part of the country sings from the same philosophy and we work in the same direction. Now, whether that's possible or just a fanciful dream, well, I'm prepared to give it a crack. And uh, um, I'm quite excited and honoured to be asked to be on the, uh, if there's a, it's a an eight member coach advisory board and it's a dynamic group of coaches from across the country. And I just feel now is a great opportunity to um, bring about some change and, um, and let's hope that we take athletics in this country to the next level.
0: Yep, so that's, that's you know, back to the, the so little A's and, and even um, the way kids are moving in schools are mainly just through the Athletics Australia foundations and and little athletics.
1: Absolutely. Yep. I mean, come with me to a school sometime. Mm. You know, I, I spend time uh, every week. I'm working and consulting as a mentor at the Scots College here in Sydney. It's a fabulous school one of the things i can't help but observe is at lunchtime when kids should be out on the playground running around and uh you know playing bull rush or whatever it is they should be playing they're sitting down with their computer and and playing some faceless game with someone and uh you know clicking buttons on a keyboard uh, ex- you know further changing their posture or enhancing that that hunched over posture that we talked about before we've got to get our kids moving and uh uh, part of it's got to start with education of what is it that we're trying to achieve and you know if you can contribute with that with the um, Athletics Australia coach advisory board. That'd be great But I, I do think that we we need to attract more coaches into the sport. We've got to have a more collaborative approach I, I think this coach is working in isolation and and trying to be the saviour you know their thing and you know going off and and uh, working as an accountant by day and then coming out and being an elite coach by night that's fantastic because that's a community aspect of the of the sport but they should have the support of that event group so that everybody's collaborating and, and collecting ideas together and bringing that through you're still going to have your own little imprimatur, your own little stamp of individuality on the program that you've got there but you stop trying to create something that um, has been in the process now for over 100 years let's do it together and i think that if we do that together we'll see the standard of australian sport lift now not everybody's going to want that because i think a lot of people in the coaching game are in it for the wrong reasons they're they're talking about my athlete and what i do and what we're going to achieve that's ego talking it's about the athlete how can you get the athlete to improve and i think we've got to do that as a group and that's what i'm hoping that this uh, um, collaborative board with Athletics Australia will um, be part of the process of doing just that.
0: Mm. So this is this collaborative board. It's a new thing that they're introducing, is it?
1: Yes, it is. Okay, yep. And uh, the first meeting of that is next week. Okay. Next week, and so you know, look, one of the people that was uh, the driver behind that was Christian Malcolm, and unfortunately this week uh, he's announced his resignation. He's heading back to the UK, so I hope it doesn't fall over before it begins. But I am a lot more optimistic than that, and I think the sport is bigger than uh, uh, certainly bigger than John Quinn, and certainly bigger than Christian Malcolm. And uh, if we can get in this together, I think we can affect the positive change that I was alluding to before.
0: Yeah, 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 no, fantastic. Yeah, all the best with that, mate. Let's move on to um hydration
1: um mm-hmm.
0: now i know you've um you've done a bit of research into this now you know we're always told and you know a, a, as as a runner and athlete when i was younger that uh you know the old cramps were you know low electrolytes and you know main focus on the, on the sodium there and your low and salt and all the rest of it and there's yeah. um, a lot of new evidence coming out now that it's got more to do with um sort of muscle cramping with um evidence sort of pointing more towards that neuromuscular control um that's triggered by the the muscular fatigue. So it's more of that um, muscle fatigue rather than being low on electrolytes. Um, What's your sort of input into that?
1: Uh, Yeah, I wouldn't move totally away from the the concept of electrolytes and and diet Mm. and uh, what people have had. So no, there's definitely uh, a very significant role to have there. Your neuromuscular system is not going to function properly if it's not hydrated properly. And when we, if you consider that, You know, your body's made up of billions of cells and uh, through those cells flow the fluid, let's just say the blood, is flowing through there. If your body's desperate for an electrolyte or a carbohydrate or a protein molecule or whatever it might be, the cell will grab that and utilise that. If you're in a state of dehydration, not only does the cell itself actually shrink down significantly in size, it becomes less permeable, meaning that no matter how desperate it is, As that blood flows around the body, it can't get into the cell. So it might be desperate for that electrolyte, carbohydrate, protein, fats or whatever. No matter how desperate it is, if it can't get into the cell, if the door is locked, then you're just going to wee that out or sweat that out and it's gone. So, no, the hydration is key to performance, in my opinion. It's also key to recovery. And I think it's so important for the athlete to become hydrated before they worry about what they're eating. Um, that that was why I educated the, the athletes and players I've worked with over the years to do just that. When I was at uh, Essendon Football Club, I did my master's thesis on hydration, where we took a hydration sample of the players before every key training session and before every game of the season. Over two years, I did that. And we looked at the data of how much a player weighed and what their urine-specific gravity was. So I took a urine sample out of them um, and looked at that and then aligned that with their GPS data, how far they ran, how fast they ran, uh, the injury rates they had, and their decision-making, how many errors that they had. There was a direct correlation to your level of dehydration and injuries and performance on the ground. Absolutely no doubt in my mind. And so the latest stuff that I've been involved with is um, I've just... Finished the supervision of two PhD students in the area of visual search, where we've put these glasses on that could measure the eye movement of an individual, and then if they search, if they're all over the place, the more that they're looking around, uh, the less clarity there is in their decision making. So I believe that we're at a point now where we can identify uh, the potential of a kid to make decisions. So they will be an elite decision maker. I think you can see that at a young age, just like you can see a better. Runner or a better uh, jumper or a better thrower at a young age, they, they, you can identify talent. I think we can identify decision makers as well. So the big, sp- a curveball on that is is the decision making influenced by your level of hydration, and I believe it is because you get fluid build up in and around the eye, and the eye that's the one thing that's driving all your decision making. So it's a fascinating area, this hydration, and it's one. You know, people talk about, you know, what supplements should I take and what should I be? Get the big blocks in place first. Mm. And the biggest block of all for me is hydration. Make sure that your hydration levels are there. How do you monitor it? If you're listening to this, monitor it by weighing yourself and monitor the fluid shift. If you go for a run and you've dropped one uh, kilo on your run, you drink one and a half litres to replace that because you're going to have a thermogenic burn, so you're going to burn more once you've when, once you've been on that run. So uh, drink one and a half litres to replace that kilo that you lost on the run. Make sure that you've got uh, salts and electrolytes in your body because that will help with the uptake into the cell. If you just drink water, that'll actually stimulate the kidneys, so you'll go to the toilet more often, and then you actually ironically become more dehydrated. Plus, you're weighing out salts and electrolytes that your body needs so make sure that you're doing that an interesting little side bit I don't know if you're interested in this but you know if you go to a fancy restaurant they'll quite often put lemons in the water and a lot of people think that's just a you know a tradition well it's a tradition that goes back over uh, 3,000 years into the African countries where they put lemon juice into the water to help the cells uptake and hold the water it keeps you hydrated so the acidity of the lemons actually help the cells um, hold the water so that's the real reason. If you if you just drink water, you're probably going to stimulate yourself to go to the toilet more. Put a squeeze of lemon juice into that water, and uh, suddenly you can hold on to it. Now people might think, well, why wouldn't you just have Powerade or Gatorade? Uh, that'd be fantastic. I think they're great drinks post or even during exercise. So if you're on a run or you're in a team sport, drink your Powerade during it and drink it after it. But having it before as your drink of choice and thinking that that's a healthy option. There's more sugar in those drinks than, you know, a lot of the fizzy can drinks that you can have. So that'll actually just give you a glycemic lift and crash and burn. And that's actually um, part of the issue of obesity in this country. But that's probably a talk for another day, Um, too much intake of sugar. But, yeah, your your most convenient and usable drink out there is um, water with a squeeze of lemon juice in it.
2: Mm, Mm-hmm
0: yeah no definitely um and uh when i get on discussion with with um some of my clients and i talk about increasing their water intake and they say they they hate the taste of water they can't drink it Mm -hmm. i often suggest that to um to squeeze some lemon in it and uh also, first thing in the morning, it, it sort of kick-starts um, the system as well. So uh, there's some other mm. benefits to it besides just just that flavour. Um,
1: That's right. Well, well, you know, and if you're, you're reaching for a fizzy drink, well, maybe you go for carbonated, you know, mineral water. That's mm. probably, uh, mm. you know, uh, that, that can give you yourself the, the, the feel that you're after, you know, the palate type of thing. But, yeah, yeah it's, a, it's a fascinating area and one that, again, I think, you know, people are looking for, you know, those... Uh, Uh, big things that can make the change for them, it's Mm. the little things like hydration that's uh, going to give you a good bang for buck.
0: Yeah, and uh, again, it's sort of um, something I I talk about is that, um, you know, people are always looking for those little secret um, the you know, the magic Mm. bullet, the silver bullet. And I Mm. always say, you know, unless you're actually getting good sleep um, you're recovering yeah. well in between the hard bouts and you've got good nutrition and hydration, then you're wasting your time with all those things. You know, Get all those things right and then go looking for those extra 1%. And I'm sure you'll definitely agree with that one.
1: Oh, well, 110%. Yeah, mm. you get, get all, you know, but people are worried about that top end, but it's the nutrition, it's the hydration, mm. and it's that recovery stuff like sleep that are the big the big ones. I mean, uh, uh, the sleep one is a big issue for us now i think more than ever with um you know the tvs that we have like the the with their uh, special uh, resonance and stuff like that it stimulates a part of your brain to think it's like daytime your laptop computer your yeah. ipad and of course your phone mm. and you know a lot of people we're just in habits now and the last thing we do is um you know we may have a message before we go to bed so let's just check just in case someone wants us and so we'll check the phone And what that does is stimulate a part of your brain. So it actually uh, has been proven now beyond any doubt that this is interfering with our sleep cycles. And, you know, there's so much evidence around with the links between sleep and health, particularly with the immune function. And I talked to you before about my um, uh, autoimmune. So I've looked very closely at the role of sleep. I think it's something that people should monitor as closely as they do their mileage. And uh, there's so many different things out there now, uh, different things that you can buy, um, a thing called WHOOP, W-H-O-O-P, will be uh, something you do. You can get watches from Garmin, I, I believe, in the Apple Watch. Um, I'm very much a fan of a ring that you can use called Oura, O-U-R-A, and uh, you just pop that on your finger and uh, that will give you everything from uh, your sleep patterns to your heart rate, your sweat rate, um, it's oh, your, your temperature. Uh, it's quite a fascinating insight into uh, into your own sleep pattern. So if people are looking at that, I, I couldn't uh, endorse that more. Actually, to go and get into it.
0: Okay. Yeah. No, it's it's interesting that one. Oh, it's sort of a good segue into into what I was going to talk about now with um with the data analysis. You know, it's sort of pretty big deal now in professional sport, um, and including running and. Um, runners always looking down at their gum and watch to get all this um feedback on all sorts of things you know oscillations and stride distance and cadence and heart rate and all these sorts of things um and uh you know i I always sort of feel that uh the athletes um sort of moving away from that um sort of inbuilt more accurate sort of let's call it a a neurological or biological feedback system you know rather than actually how you're actually feeling and you know listening listening to your feet hitting the ground and thinking about your posture mm. and all those more important things worrying about looking at the data coming out out, out of a watch and um, like you said there um, looking at, at, at your sleep you, you can actually wear something that actually give you an indication of of how well you're sleeping because you know if, if you if your head hits the pillow at nine o'clock and you get up at five o'clock say so that's eight hours but you actually don't know how many hours you've actually, um being in that in that in that rem that REM soccer that mm-hmm, deep sleep mm-hmm. so i say that ring that you're talking about that would give you an indication of of how long you've actually had good quality sleep rather than how many hours you've your, your eyelids have been closed
1: definitely mate and with you know it's obviously not validated i'm just mm. looking at I'm, I'm a case study of one but mm. i'm just amazed at uh at the accuracy of um when i'm awake you know i might get a a phone call or a disturbance or something like that, and my sleep patterns since the autoimmune disease haven't been that great. If I'm awake, uh, it's recorded. I can I download it at, at the end every morning.
2: Mm.
1: Incredible! It's down to the minute of when I I know when I wake up if I had a good night, and it's, it's always backed up by the data that I'm getting through mm. from this. So it's a it's a fascinating area, mm. and I think it's a, it's a, one of those areas that if you can influence it. Uh, it's going to definitely help performance. Mm. I've got no doubt at all. Mm. Mm. Yeah. But, but yeah, going back on your point there, you know, running along and looking at your cadence rate and and uh, you know all these different things that you're getting coming through. Yeah, you can get overwhelmed. You've got to look at the the data that's really important and and get rid of all the rest and just break it down to the key simple measures that you're looking for. You know, too much analysis leads to paralysis. You know, just uh, just get the key the key measurables that you're after and uh, stick to those but oh, look i've got no doubt that it's quite motivating and it's interesting and mm. if that's one of the reasons that gets you out there moving we'll yeah. go and do that i'd yeah. rather i'd rather have an athlete over analyzing themselves if they go um and watch than sitting down there playing uh you know um death star on the playstation you know just just yep. get out there and, and move
0: yeah, yeah. And like you mentioned before with the ipe though if they can just write down i'm just thinking from my experience it, it's funny that um you know, obviously, you, you generally have a fatigue state most of the time, even even if you're doing anything right, and that's just part of, of, of being a distance runner and running daily. Yeah. Um, so, you, But you get an idea of what's usual and what's unusual. And I always find that there'll be two or three days in a row where you just feel fatigued and you're sort of looking back at what you've done and you think, no, look, everything's fairly cool. similar. I haven't suddenly increased load or intensity. I'm feeling really, really tired and then on the fourth or fifth day, suddenly you come down, you know, with something, you know, a sore throat or fever or a headache yeah. and you think, you know, th- there were signals there that, you know, I felt that sort of rundown fatigue first before that came in. And that's obviously the immune system kicking in, um, yeah. trying to, to defeat the, um, the bad army before those symptoms come out. And they sure, talk about heart rate variability and looking at all these other other things. But if if you were just doing a um, just you're recording your RPE in, in a diary and suddenly you write write down a number of five and then a number of four and a half and a number of four you could actually see that and go, okay, maybe before these, you know, my immune system can't defeat the enemy and and I get sick. I should back off for a couple of days. So that's actually responding to your to your normal um, impulses from your body, what it's trying to tell you. Um, so yeah, so that's sort of you know where I think, like I said, people need to start listening more to their bodies rather than relying on 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 other bits yeah. of information.
1: Definitely right. I think they've got to uh, feel the event rather than Mm. uh, record the event Mm. all the time you know don't don't always time you run just just run for how it feels and Mm. and 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 the enjoyment factor of it but also i suppose segment what we do so we've got our running and we've got our work life and we've got our social life or whatever it should all be one and the same if you um have a, a a really stressful time at work sometimes going for a run can actually make you feel better from that but cumulatively stress is stress mm. and your body's not differentiating too much all these different forms of stresses that you've got going on in your life and you know i i'll tend to work on a three plus one so three weeks up and one week down if you start tracking and you see yourself going up then you give yourself a recovery week three weeks up one week down three weeks up one week down but you've got to really listen to your body and if you're not running um you know close to your pb or your goal time in that run well look at all the other factors that are going on in your body whether that be you know an argument with your partner or lack of sleep or you know the arrival of a new baby in your life or uh, stress about a new job or you might be going to get the sack because of COVID. all those things are going to manifest themselves in your performance and you've got to listen to that and and adjust your program according to that well no Garmin watch, to my knowledge, is going to come out and tell you that you need to do this or do that. I think you've got to let your own body tell you that. The yeah. Garmin might be able to support it, yeah. but it's not going to tell you it. And no, I think I, people I, have to really listen to their body.
0: Yeah, no, I totally agree. It, it sounds like you watched uh, watched one of my videos on, on the YouTube channel. <laughs> and <laughs> that, was, that was titled, Good Stress, Bad Stress, It's All Stress. And oh. pretty much I talk about taking into account um, a lot of runners will just look at at their training diaries and how much you know what sessions are done and how much um, run training they're doing but um, Mm -hmm. overlook the other stresses in their life like um, you know longer working hours or -hmm. you've just flown back from overseas or relationship issues all those things that you mentioned and uh, not realize that they actually may have to adjust that track session they were going to do that afternoon if you had a sleepless night or you got a lot of stress going on because they don't look at that as a stress and that as a possible um problem that's going to um you know inhibit their, their training so um it's,
1: well, it's I, I really believe as you've got to listen to those things because mm. it's, it's it it actually allows you to do the most fundamental thing for performance you've got to i can go out there and tell my athletes what to do so i can have a, a program and the program's there and they can follow it to the letter that's a training program so i'm training them But if I'm down there and I've got my program structured up and I'm seeing that they're doing particularly well, I might add an extra one or I might say, wow, you're going so well at this. Let's change that. I'm going to give you this to do. Suddenly, I'm coaching them. There's a big distinction between training someone and coaching someone. And if you're just a slave to the program, all you're doing is you're training. You've got to learn to coach yourself. And tools like these monitors and whatever, they make you slaves to that. But when you start listening to your body and how you feel and how you're responding to things, suddenly you're coaching yourself. And it's when you start coaching yourself that I believe performances go to the next the next level.
0: Yep, no, definitely agree, mate. Definitely agree. And um, yeah, I'm hoping that the more you uh, talk about this, and uh, and the listeners are uh, um, listening to this podcast, um, yeah, that they maybe they'll start to uh, implement some of that. Um, at least uh, the more we talk about, it, the more the message gets across there. Um, just because I said that, yeah, a lot of runners just got the blinkers on and just keep focusing on uh, how many Ks they can run in a week, and, uh, and not look at these other things. And uh, we all know wh- when uh, when a runner's injured, they're not the nicest people to be around, mm. and then that creates even more of a problem. So, um, mm.
1: mate, well, I still think there's a role for that. I mean, it can be motivating to to get there and, and have those set targets. Mm. But you know, I, I when you're making a goal uh set out for somebody you know if i said that i was going to travel from uh uh sydney to melbourne on a road trip well the goal is pretty obvious i'm going to get to melbourne so i want to get there there's nothing in there that says that i can't stop off to have a look at the big sheep in goulburn or that i can't uh you know pull over a gundy guy to just see you know the dog on the tucker box i can have i can deviate off that tour by just for what i need have my break when i need my break my ultimate goal is still going to be there and when I get to that goal, I want to be in the best shape possible. And if I have those little stop-offs along the way that allow me to stay alert and and um, and engage with the whole process, I believe I'm going to be better for it. I think you've got to apply that type of thinking to your training program. Don't be a slave to the program. Coach your program. Allow yourself to have stop-offs along the way. Allow yourself to stay engaged and refreshed. And when you get to your end goal, you're going to reach it possibly exceed your expectation
0: yeah yeah it, it's, it's sort of, of like along the, the words of um, really got to enjoy the journey um, to that destination um, yeah, and a lot of athletes will say, you know, the the, the race day or competition day is the easy part because um, I've done all the work. Um, it yeah. was it was the journey and getting there that was the um, the challenging part and the most satisfying part. Uh, when I yeah. turn up to compete, um, I just go into mode and, and do what I'm, what what I hope to do and what I'm meant to do. But it's it's the journey along the way that, that that's um that, that's the most enjoyable part of, of the process.
1: Well, mate, I I've, I'm really hoping and I believe that I'm going to have a couple of athletes. On the team for Tokyo uh, when it gets underway next year and when they're there and they perform to their best and people say oh you know fantastic wouldn't it be great to be an athlete like this they didn't see the session today when they're on their hands and knees and all the, the hard work that they've done and the hard slog you know mm. it's the things that people don't see that probably make make the difference but uh yeah the end the end result is the easy one that the uh the glory lap but gee it's a long way to get into the stadium for that lap
0: yeah for sure and it's it's sort of again something i've you know spoken about over time um is if 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 you said to someone okay this is what you got to i guarantee you'll win olympic gold in four years all right i guarantee you that will happen but what you have to do to get there is you got to do this every day and just about no one will get to that olympic gold because of the amount of hard work they actually have to put in and the discipline and putting things aside that they're not genuinely prepared to put aside and um and that, that, that's what I love about sport, and that's what I love about champions, is the fact that uh, they just have that correct mindset, and they and they can prioritise, and it's just a hard work. Um, and mm. it's, it's not always a smooth road; they have their ups and their downs. But um, that's what uh, that's what they deal with, and they accept it, and they move on. And um, yeah, it's it's that's that's what I love about sport. It's just beautiful those stories and. It's one thing I, we don't really get a lot of bad in, in running is, is hearing the stories behind all that. Um, mm. You know, we watch the Olympics and we watch 20 guys running around the 10K final, whatever it might be, but we actually don't know the stories behind those people and that's something that's missing and I wish there was more of in sport in general, but certainly in, mm. in running because there's some brilliant stories out there that, that that are untold and that we don't get to hear.
1: Right, mate, that's the, that's the reason why I coach. Um, mm. It's the stories. It's the stories and being able to be a part of that fabric of those stories and, uh, and allow people to uh, achieve their ultimate goal for themselves. And a lot of people think that that's uh, coaching the Olympic athlete. For me, I measure my coaching effectiveness on the improvement of my least talented athlete. I think you've got to look at it like that. Mm. You know, it's, it's not about reflective glory. It's about are you impacting positively on this person's life And if you are, that part of that's going to be about their performance out there, no doubt. But, yeah, a coaching role is such an important one uh, for people. And, uh, yeah, it's one I take pretty seriously, actually.
0: Mm. And do you try to get your athletes to, you know, some people just want to be told what to do, and they don't necessarily want to know why. Um, do you believe in educating them so that they actually have an understanding of why they're doing something? Yes. You know, because yes. that way they can make better decisions if, if for some reason they need to, because you're not there. And that
1: of course, and and you know, you're not going to be there, and maybe not there for the biggest moments. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, they've, they've got to be that. I, I I use the thing, you know, I want to make myself redundant,
2: mm-hmm. so they don't
1: need me. So I'm trying to teach them about. You know, all these things we've been talking about today, but also uh, uh, even the concepts of periodization. But the, the best thing is when those athletes become coaches themselves. And we've got to secure the future for the sport, and that's by encouraging these people to know as much as they can. So at the end of the day, oh, my God, I'm so glad that that's finished and walk out of it. But they're still in love with the sport, and they want to contribute to the sport. And they're then going to bring through the next... The next um, uh, charge coming through. It's just so important, and coaching just isn't this superficial thing. It's um, oh, it's 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 about coaching the person. I, I coach the athlete, and and then the event next. I think it's so important to do that. And uh, if you can get if you can get in, into the mindset of your athlete, then you're going to not only are they going to go a long way as an athlete, I think they're going to go a longer way as a person. Make make them as good as they can be, and bring them into keep that that whole system going so we've got coaches into the future of high quality and standard and knowledge
0: mm-hmm. no definitely mate mate i'm taking a lot of your uh, Saturday evening mate so i'm going to bring this to a close soon but i was just thinking what um just for or, or the or the distance runners that are listening what are some of the things that you reckon that they need to be doing that they're not like, what are some things that most of them aren't doing and, and the, let's think about it the most beneficial the best bang for buck of things that they yeah. need to implement into their training, basically, you know, I guess minimizing the risky injury is going to lead to high performance because basically, if you're not getting injured, you know, the biggest thing that upsets someone improving as a runner is the downtime because they get injured. So, so straight away we know they need to be doing strength and conditioning, and especially as they get older. Um, you know, I'm just you know 48 now, and I know that I can train just as hard, but the amount of recovery I need is increased so much. Um, but um, as far as, as training goes, yeah, what are some of the things they should be doing
1: more of? Personally, I, when we talk about distance running especially, mm. I think that, the, they, that there's so little individuality in distance running. For an individual sport, I, I often laugh about that. It's such a, a, a confused term because the distance runners all do the same type of work. They all run together. They run the same venues mm. and the same rules and everything's the same. And that it's like one model fits all. I think look at the individuality. What does that individual need? Who is an athlete that's like that person? And how can we structure the program that meets the the areas of, of that that person? Whether that be uh, the strength program, and you'd look at that through their postural um, uh, presentation, but I'd also look at their mechanics. Mm. How can we get the best technique? You know, I was really blessed as a young Coach when I first started The absolute pin-up The Usain Bolt of my day Was a guy called Carl Lewis And technically I don't think you could get a better um, Exponent of Running than Carl Lewis And so that influenced my Mindset of running What's the vision that The athletes have Of what they should look like And how they should be moving And are they working towards developing that Through a body that's balanced and uh in proportion and is able to allow them then to execute the right technique with the most force so i'd say get the individuality stuff going in there and have a needs analysis of what that is and that's going to take you down the whole the whole track of the um the posture and technique that we've spent a lot of time here and the other thing is when you talk about recovery make sure you include into that things like mobility and uh joint movement because as these athletes are doing more and more miles, they've got to make sure that they keep their body in tune. I mean, if you're going to drive your car over more miles, you've got to make sure that that body, uh, that, that car, rather, is in tune and uh, and everything's fired up and ready to go. Mobility is important. We've talked about stability. We've talked about movement. I think they're the key, key things. And the sad part is I think a lot of... Um, uh, Athletes know that, but it's it's beyond their psyche and their capability, and and uh, they they'll probably always be athletes who are almost there but not quite. With,
0: with the with the mobility um, and and the strength, I, I touched that on that before. I just can't remember oh. what you exactly said. What, we should be always implementing the two within our within our weekly program.
1: Yes, yeah, yep. I definitely would, yep. and I, I would be doing um, just incorporate it. Yep. Weave it into the whole thing. Don't necessarily have it as a separate entity. Yeah. Just weave it in. So mm. at the start of the program, um, like I've got no hurdles in my sprint squad, but we do a lot of uh, hurdle work, under overs, and hip mobility work using hurdles because I want them to be mobile through the hips. I don't want them to go off and do uh, do hurdling, but um, you know I think that's that's one way of doing that. And then at the end of the session, as I said, they do their warm down in bare feet i'm trying to Mm. um mobilize ankles and feet but also then they do a series of set stretching and movement to slow everything down but to get the range of motion back in there and they do other stretching away from me which i think is uh vital to just maintaining where they're at yep 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 um
0: are you happy for me to put some links in there so the listeners um um, if they want to come in and and uh, to the clinic there in in Melbourne, South Yarra, Melbourne wasn't it and double Bay yeah. Sydney was double absolutely. Bay? Absolutely, yeah.
1: absolutely. and I'd love for you to put one in for my own website So they can come there and if they've got any questions give them my email address so they can just email me and ask What do you think about this yeah. more than happy?
0: Okay, fantastic um, I'll work those links in there and I'll, I'll, uh, I'll once I once I do the official goodbye down the line and I'll grab those off you Um Look, um, thanks heaps for sharing something this afternoon with us. Um, I know you're a busy man, so we're um, all very appreciative of that. Uh,
1: Always, always happy to talk about running and performance and uh, hopefully, look, if, you know, people are listening to that and they get one thing out of there, you know, then it's worthwhile and, uh, yeah, I'd appreciate any feedback they have, good, bad or indifferent and, uh, as I said, let's uh, let's do this together and let's, I'm sounding a bit like Donald Trump, sorry. Let's... uh, (laughs) But, no, let, I think we should work as a collective and uh, lift the whole standard of the sport in this country. And, you know, if this can get some people moving in that direction, that would be fantastic. No,
0: nah, it sounds like a great mission, mate. Um, yeah, and all the best with that, um, with your work with um, with Athletics Australia.
2: Mm,
1: um,
0: yeah, no, it's going to be good to, to see that to see that happen. And like you said, we, we need to get the young kids um, moving more often and, and probably better. Um, so, yeah, it sounds like um, a great way to go. Um, mm. So I have no doubt the listeners, um, including myself, have sort of got a lot of takeaways out of this discussion, mate. So you really appreciate that, Quinny.
1: My pleasure, mate. Absolute pleasure. Anytime time uh, you know you want to expand or or refine one area, and uh, uh, and if you're looking for other people to talk on there, I'm sure I could. Uh, yeah, throw some uh, very unique people in for a roundtable discussion from all different parts of the world. If you wanted to do something like that.
0: Oh mate, I'll definitely be taking you up on that, mate. So uh, hold the line, I'll grab some details off you. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, thanks again so much, Winnie.
1: My pleasure. Okay, okay mate. great to be with you. Thanks.
0: Thanks, mate.